0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to Mentoring with Larry Sternberg, a show devoted to learning more about mentoring relationships. My guest today is Dr. Cal Garbin. Dr. Garvin is a psychology professor and research psychologist at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln with a doctorate in experimental psychology. He has supervised over 400 graduate research presentations and served on more than 100 dissertation committees. He has also won numerous awards, including Outstanding Educator of the Year uh, and an award for instructional creativity. In addition to his academic career, Cal is also a highly successful martial arts competitor. So his life experience puts him in a unique position to share his insights on mentoring in diverse worlds, including academia, business, and martial arts. We're very pleased to have Dr. Garbin as our first guest. Good morning, Cal. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd like to say to our listeners that if you'd like to call in with a question for Dr. Garbin, the number is 1-888-346-9141. I'm interested to hear about some of your mentors, Cal. I know you have several. Who would you like to talk about first?
2: Probably the one I want to talk about first is David Owen Shaw. He was my first stats teacher as an undergraduate. All right, tell us about David Owenshaw. David Owenshaw was impatient, and that was his mentoring style. He wanted the best for you, he wanted you to proceed and excel and. He wanted to make sure that you knew everything that he could tell you as quickly as he could convey that information to you and get you to understand it so that you had as much time to grow with that information as possible. And that's one of two really different mentoring styles. I mean, one mentoring style is to push people into things where they learn stuff and wait for them to learn it. David's style, and I fear my own, is to really drive as much information into people as possible, as quickly as possible, and then let them use all of their time to apply that and extend it and hopefully learn things I can't teach them.
1: And how did you meet first?
2: I took a stats class from it. It was one of the only required classes in the psych Program. I took it while I was still actually an ed major because his stats course was supposed to be scarier than the one that they taught in the ed department. And uh, I thought that sounded like fun.
1: Ed, when did you first realize that you were in a mentoring relationship with this gentleman?
2: Uh, the Monday of the second week, he said at the end of class, Come with me, hauled me into his office, and he said, I'm going to shape you. I pretty much knew I was in a mentoring relationship. (laughs) And did he say why? Um, He had heard about my um, ongoing questioning of things in the education department and thought he had answers that would make me happy, and he thought that he would do a better job than they would of turning me into a productive member of society got to remember, this was the middle 70s, and I was sort of ornery, and I probably needed mentored instead of left alone to grow on my own.
1: Do you think his mentoring style, you said you have pretty much the same mentoring style as he does, do you think that's a result of you being mentored by him?
2: I think so. I'm arrogant enough to believe that I can recognize people like he and I and mentor us that way. But I really try and adapt the way I mentor to the, what the person will benefit from. It's one of the advantages of being old and having done this for a fairly long time is that you get to try different things with different kinds of people and have. I think it's important to have more than one mentoring style.
1: And so you do have more than one mentoring style?
2: Oh, yes. I, I can be very pleasant and very patient if that's the sort of person that I think I'm working with and and the sort of approach that they need. But I'll be honest, whenever I get a chance to to push somebody, I do because I think that most of us can accomplish more than we think we can, especially when we're young and we're sort of overwhelmed with being in graduate school and all of the work that that is and all of the surprises that go on. And I think that a a lot of people sort of sit quietly for a bit, hoping that it will pass over their head and, I think that for many people, that's a waste of time. We need to get busy.
1: In your relationship
2: with David, and by the way,
1: are you still in a relationship with David?
2: Oh, no, he has passed. Oh, oh uh, my, we my condolences really there. Excuse me? We were, you know, we kept in touch and, and worked hard at each other for a long time until, you know, he finally passed.
1: So... What was your relationship like? Was it a formal relationship? Did you decide you were going to meet on a regular schedule? Or was it more informal?
2: Um, no, there was really nothing formal about it. He would show up in my lab. I would show up in his office. I would get a note tacked to my door to meet him somewhere. I would drop by his house. I mean, it was whenever, whenever he had something for me to do, or something that he thought I needed to hear, or something that I wanted to talk to him about. We just sort of found each other and did it.
1: Did you ever feel like you outgrew him?
2: Um, I outgrew the particular statistical models that he liked best and cared about and had committed himself to teaching to the next generation but I never outgrew the wisdom or the integration or what it meant to learn new things. Did uh, you... that, I, that I have go to tell ahead. you again is something else that I've adopted. I, my kids, I try and give them that, that first year and a half of solid underpinning and research methods and stats, and then I push them to go learn models that I don't particularly know well.
1: Would you say you became friends with
2: him? Oh, I think we were, we were friends, you know, kindred, spirit, recognized sort of friends really early. It was definitely a hierarchy. He was a big fan of, he was, he was Dr. Shaw and I was Cal even when he wouldn't let me call him Dr. Shaw anymore. But there was always a hierarchy there because he wanted me, I think it's because he wanted me to know that there was always something else to learn from him. And there was always something else he could do for me. And he was always most comfortable with that a little bit of hierarchy. else would you like to
1: talk about as a mentor of yours?
2: Probably the the next one in order in terms of how much they changed my world and and set me up for a really nice life was uh, Ira Bernstein, who was my mentor and advisor in graduate school.
1: Well, how did you meet Ira?
2: I was working at a place called Applied Science Associates and I was working for a gentleman who had been an undergraduate with IRA down at Texas at Arlington and IRA was working on something and Don sent me to Texas to work with IRA on this thing, what what was supposed to be my vacation week. He sent me down to Texas to work with IRA. Um, I met with him. I stayed. I worked with him for a while. I went back. We had a great time together. We, sort of blended things that the two of us knew together and had a great time on a project. And a couple weeks later, he called and he said, so would you like to be my graduate student? Said, he, in, sure. he invited you?
1: Yes. Was that the same with David? He I, I believe, if I remember what you said, was David reached out to you.
2: Yeah, both of them had had heard stories about me being sort of henry um, and inexhaustible and, and really trying to learn things and decided I was worth their time.
1: Would you say you were friends with Ira first or was he a mentor first?
2: He was a mentor first, but it was a weird sort of mentor relationship. I mean, at least once a week, Vern, the chair, would come down and close the door and say, if you two are going to scream at each other, you have to do it with the door closed. <laughs> It was, it was two East Coast-only children in the heart of Texas, and our interaction style was a little different than traditional in, in, uh, in graduate school. But I think it's because we really cared for each other, and, and that's just, we didn't let emotion get in the way. We certainly didn't let emotion lay to the side. We were just very invested in everything we did, and when we didn't agree, we went after it.
1: Are you still in a relationship with him?
2: Not so much his his interests have changed and he's working at the, the medical school now and and I think he still has his jazz radio show and no we just sort of fell away from each other as we got busy doing other things and didn't get a chance to work together anymore
1: How did he change your life in addition to what happened
2: with David What Ira really did is he made me look at what I wanted to do and recognize what I was going to have to do in graduate school for that to be successful. And that sounds like, well, of course he did. But what I wanted to do was the job I have, which is I wanted to be really broadly trained in a wide variety of methodology and statistical models. And that's not the usual graduate goal, the usual graduate goal is, you know, the classic for a dissertation. You learn more and more about less and less until you know enough to generate a new piece of knowledge in a specific area. And while I did that, because they make you do that, uh, he knew that what I needed was a very broad background. And so he was incredibly nice. And by nice, I mean I was rarely his research assistant. He farmed me out to a variety of other people, inside and outside of the department, so that I had a really broad array of experimental and non-experimental and lab and field and psychology and herpetology and sociology experience. At the same time, he insisted that I take multiple statistics courses every dep- every semester. Now, there are only so many statistics courses, but those same courses are often taught in different departments. So you end up taking multiple versions of a course. And there's a huge difference between having taken you know, those standard regression courses once and seven times. And what, what both, of these, both of these men did as mentors was they, they recognized what I really wanted to do Not the degree I was there to get, or the standard version of getting that degree, but they took apart what I really wanted to do and helped me set a path to get there that was, in both cases, fairly non-standard. And I think that's really important for mentors, because mentors usually are not mentoring themselves, if that makes sense. The person you're mentoring is probably not like you. It sort of seems like they ought to be because they're in your department and they're in your lab or they're in your class, but they're not you. And there's, they're emotionally not you, they're historically not you, and their future is not yours. And if you're going to be a good mentor, you cannot cookie-cutter people. You've got to take apart, you've got to be, almost be smarter than they are at what they want to do way smarter than they are at how to prepare for it. And then you got to put one comforting hand on their shoulder and one prodding foot in their ass and make sure they do what they need to do for their own future.
1: Very, very interesting. Who's next on your list of
2: mentors? Um, you know, since you mentioned it, I want to talk about my, uh, my sensei. I yes, out please do. College I started out in college taking, you know, a karate class from a couple of black belts who would come to uh, Slippery Rock, where I was going to school from the same school in Philadelphia. And um, they had trained together since they were kids, and they pretty much used me as a foil and a beating ball, um, which is a, a great way to learn. I got a job working in a bar, and that led to some... Street fights, and after a, after a street fight one night, the, uh, this guy walked up to me and said, how about if I train you, and we'll see if we can't, uh, can't turn you into a full contact fighter? And was this so, because uh, you
1: lost the street fight or won it? Oh, I won it. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't mention what your job was in this bar, Cal. I was a bouncer. Yeah, very good what was the name of this <laughs> I, I can't, I've
2: can't. i worked in a bar for years and years I can't mix a drink, I can barely pull a beer uh,
1: I'm sure that uh, other people are happy to pull it for you so you were working as a bouncer where was this by the way
2: this is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania so a steel town yeah, we had three clientele we had steel workers, bikers and college students no two of which like each other. We drop all three into a large, loud, sweaty place with alcohol. It can get interesting by 11 or 12.
1: How did this, by the way, what is his name? Sen Oh, my. Uh, could you spell that for for our listeners and for
2: me? I, I've never seen it written down. I've always just wrote it down as capital S-E-N, capital H-E. Okay. Uh, that's a big help we 've got a
1: couple minutes to a commercial here, so we're not going to finish talking about sen uh, before the before we take a commercial break. Why was he even in that area?
2: He had just um, broken up with his last student and he was looking for somebody and and um he'd he, this is what he did, is he hung out at the, at, the, uh, at the street fights and the cage fights until he found somebody that looked like fun, and then he'd pick them up and work with them for a few years and see if he could pull them out of that sort of fighting and get them into you know, more legitimate sorts of fighting. And he had lots and lots of connections, and so if he got good enough, he could hook you up with, with you know good, legitimate stuff.
1: Did he tell you what it was he saw in you that attracted
2: him? Um this was, you know, in, in the late seventies and most of the best martial artists were about six two and hundred and eighty pounds. And that was that was the style, that was the body type. I was five eight and two ten and I was a power lifter. And he thought that as hard as I could hit and as much of a beating as I could probably take, we could have some fun.
1: So this is the third mentor who chose you rather than you going to him. Yeah. That in yeah. itself is kind of interesting, don't you think?
2: It is. And I have to tell you that I I have adopted that from all three of them, which is I, I spend time looking for who I'm going to invest time in. I don't have a lot of my own graduate students, but I teach big chunks of graduate students in my stats classes and I'm always watching for the ones that you want to spend that extra time with. You want to pull them in. You want to make sure that they've got a goal, that they know where they're going. They've got a plan. And then, like I say, that comforting shoulder, hand on their shoulder and that encouraging foot in their butt.
1: What was there about him? I mean, this man was a total stranger he, he comes up to you and says that he wants to teach you. What was there about him that caused you to trust him?
2: Um, I told him I thought he was unlikely to be helpful to me, tried to push him away and picked myself up off the ground.
1: Okay, we've got about 20 seconds here until we come to a brief break for the commercial. So I want to encourage everybody to join us after commercial, learn more about Sen He and other mentors that Cal Garvin has had. So let's take a brief break, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes.
3: your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
0: When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. Results matter and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission, vision, and values. where science meets talent, where people drive results.
3: Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed.
1: Welcome back, this is Mentoring with Larry Sternberg, and I'm here with my guest, Dr. Cal Garbin. He's talking about one of his mentors, Sen He, who taught him how to be a better fighter. So Cal, let's continue.
2: This was during the beginning of the development of what was called PKA, the Professional Karate Association. It's the, the first time that um, full contact had become visible in the United States as a sport, and now there were professionals, and so there was all of this attention, and because there was all of this attention, uh, there were two consequences, one of which was there were lots of tournaments, and... Um, the other, which, the other of which was that there were lots of schools. Everybody was suddenly a full-contact martial artist and teaching it for $100 a week. And um, so it was possible to have lots and lots of fights and lots and lots of places to train, and he was really good about finding a gym and sliding me into that gym and working with their best people for a while and then find another one and... You know, and he at the same time he insisted. um, You know, I'm I'm 19 years old. I'm away from home, and I have a guy who wants to see my homework to make sure that I'm getting good enough grades in my in my schoolwork before I'm allowed to go train.
1: So he was interested in you beyond just the fighting.
2: Oh yes, Um, he he was. Very whole person, very holistic. If I wasn't growing as a student, I couldn't be growing as a martial artist. There were times he came uh, to the gym at the same time I was on the school powerlifting team, and he would come to the gym and he wanted to make sure that I was getting better at that too. Because if I wasn't getting better at these other things, I couldn't be getting better at what he cared about. It was all about balance with him.
1: Was and, that the uh, case? Was that the case with the other two? mentors you've talked about
2: um you know i think dos i I think david you know recognized that i had time away from him um and i had other classes and stuff but mostly he was interested in my future as a as a numbers cruncher and a data analyst and a teacher of those things ira um you know That's what was more of sort of the stereotypic, not the classic, but the stereotypic graduate advisor mentor. I I was there for him and his bidding and what he thought needed to be done. And and he cared about me, and he pointed those things in a direction that would be the most good to me as often as possible. But it was was sort of the indentured servitude model of graduate school.
1: Do you think that the difference in the holistic interest from Sen He is typical of mentors who are in sports and other types of performance endeavors? Or do you think that was just coincidental to him?
2: Uh, I think you see more of that in individual sports than in team sports. Just because an individual sports coach has more time with you than a team with you as a person than a team coach does. Well, that's certainly that's certainly the case. But I can tell you that you can you can thwart that tendency. Uh, all of my children who are all soccer players were all raised to walk off the field with the coach after every practice, after every game, to get time with the coach about what they should be doing and how things went and just constantly making sure that they had that personal relationship that I think the coaches want to give but run out of time and you can you can create by just politely insisting my is, my kids uh, have all been at you know national workshops and things like that and it's it's them that walks off the field with the guest coach.
1: That's coach certainly a reverse of the, the model that be, these sorry, three what? mentors demonstrated to you where they made the initiation of the relationship. Right. Very interesting. What did Senhe teach you that the, your first two mentors, for whatever reason didn't teach you? Uh,
2: Well, remember that he was sort of in between David and Ira in real time. Oh, okay. Um, David was David and Sen. He both sort of picked me up when I was a sophomore, and then Ira was my graduate advisor. Um, You know, we were in a whole different arena. There's There's a whole difference between Working on being a better fighter and working on being, bang, betting, being a better data analyst and, and working towards being a good teacher. Um, but the, one of the things that that Senhee obviously had to work on is it wasn't enough that I understood something. I had to be able to do it. Right. Um, you know, armchair fighters get to sit in an armchair. And I think that 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 distinction between knowing about things and knowing how to do them, all three of them drove. It was just a little more obvious with him uh, because he wanted me to be able to articulate the details of a technique or a combination of techniques. I literally had to be able to sit there and tell him what, you know, where this knee is pointing and he would have me throw a technique and then close my eyes and go through the feel of it again and tell him which foot had pivoted wrong. And there was just a level of attention to detail on the transition from knowing about what you're doing to actually being able to do it. And I think that that attention to that additional kind of detail then fed into the rest of my life.
1: And as you say, fit into the rest of your life. Does that carry over to your teaching these days, this distinction between knowing intellectually how to do something and actually
2: doing it? Yes. It's something that I talk about when I do workshops. It's something that I tell my kids in class. I tell them this is not the sort of course where the facts are the end of the story or even how the facts integrate are the end of the story. Knowing what all these things are is a wonderful place to start, but we have to actually be able to do things, not just know about them. And, yeah, that's, that's a centerpiece of the way I interact as a teacher and as a mentor and as a parent.
1: Does this come as a surprise to a certain number of your students?
2: Um, not for long. It's one of those things that whether you've (laughs) thought about it before or not, or been talked into it before or not, when you hear it, especially sitting in a stats class, it's like, well, yeah, I guess at some point I'm going to have to actually do this stuff. So being able to write an essay might not be the final evaluation of what I know. And it just, in that particular context, it makes obvious sense the same as it did in a context of learning to be a fighter. Being able to sit there and talk about what it means to throw a combination or how you choose what you're going to do or how you you know, take apart an opponent, it's great to be able to sit there and have that conversation, but if you can't turn it into effective action, nobody's going to write you a check. Nobody's going to give you a job. Nobody's going to keep you around. And so, yes, it seems to resonate with people pretty much the first time they hear it. And, you know, this is not a new idea. This is the the heart and soul of physical education, education, which is where I started as a phys ed teacher. It's all about the difference between not just knowing, but also being able to do. Uh, no, the last 15 or 20 years, it's become a highlight in lots and lots of teaching. The chemists and the physicists figured it out about 30 years ago. The math people have always known it, and the rest of us are plodding along after them, trying to figure out you know, how to do better than teach them about and expect them to know how to.
1: Do you have another mentor you'd like to discuss?
2: Yes, I do. Um, he probably wouldn't have thought of himself as a mentor. He probably would have thought of himself as, as you know, a guy who made me um, annoyed at him a lot. But I don't think he, he ever really knew how much I valued him. But it was Dr. Herb Howe. He was the chair that hired me and the chair that promoted me to, uh, gave me tenure and promoted me to associate professor. He was relentless in his attempts to explain to me how academics worked and how i needed to do this or that different or better or not at all so that i could fit in enough that they'd let me stay and he was just he was just great cuz he he put up a, a a bit he put up with a lot of my informality he put up a, with a lot of my impatience and just Sort of did a really nice job of turning those into strengths rather than them things that got me in trouble that- but after I got tenure, he really settled into mentoring me, and with his incredible help, we created um, a set of ex a set of official expectations for me that allowed me to do what I really wanted to do, which was gather up some of these research methods courses become increasingly better at teaching them and just really our department offering a firm foundation in that stuff to our kids, which sounds like normal stuff. The problem is that it's, it's difficult to find somebody with enough breadth and enough interest that they really want to teach the intro stats course long enough to get really good at it. I don't know if that makes sense. Because remember the... The the typical dissertation is, you know, the the classic line is you learn more and more about less and less till you know a great deal about one thing. And while those people can talk about research in their area, research across areas is so incredibly broad and so incredibly different that you, you, you have to have gotten your feet wet in several different puddles, I think. And remember, that's what IRA was making me do, was take all these different stats classes, work in all these different labs, because at the time, I was planning to go back into business. But after I taught for a while, I decided I wanted to go into academics so that I could teach. And then I had you know, all of this breadth built into me. Dr. Herb Howe saw that breadth and mentored me in a way that allowed me to express it.
1: One and of the so, interesting things you said in talking about Dr. Howe is that you established a set of formal expectations did your karate sensei do that with you?
2: Um, you know, he just had. When it all boiled down, there was one thing. At the end of the fight, I was expected to be the only one standing. <laughs> everything, everything else was leading up to that. If we're going to fight, that's the only thing that matters. He In he academics. didn't, for
1: instance, say, I expect you to work twice as hard as anybody else or lay out any expectations for what he wanted from you as a mentee?
2: He kept it really simple. What have you done for me lately? Why aren't you doing more?
1: <laughs> How about the other mentors you've discussed? Did you have any sort of articulated expectations between the mentor and the mentee with those gentlemen
2: one really interesting thing about both of them is is real early we sort of generated this semi-formal list of what i needed to get done before i was done and so there were courses that needed to be taken there were people i needed to spend time with there were a couple of projects that he that needed to be done but you know this is this was the list of stuff that Dave wanted me to have done before i graduated this was the list of stuff that ira wanted me to have done before i was graduated because that list of things i could hold up as a resume or a vita and say that someone else should invest on in me this is this is what i'm starting with
0: the
1: Fighting, expectations
2: your vita doesn't count the only accounts is you know your list how many fights how many wins how many knockouts And by the way, what was that list? Um, You know, there were a lot of different kinds of fights. Some of them were appropriate fights and bouts in front of people, and some of them were money fights off in corners. Um, But I'm willing to claim six defeats out of about 90 fights. Two of those were fighting real boxers and... It took me a while to figure out what to do as a boxer because they they only let you use your hands. What about all the rest of these things I know how to do? Oh, no, no. Stand there and get punched in the head by somebody who's better at it than you. Okay. So I I had six fights and I won four of them, but the first two were just nightmares. I had no idea what I was doing, and clearly these other gentlemen did. How did your sensei deal with those losses? He expected them. He was shocked when we did well starting in the third fight. The whole reason that he put me into the boxing fights was to try and settle down my rapidly developing arrogance. So his (laughs) idea was to put me into something that I could not possibly do well at, and hopefully that would remind me that I had things to learn about everything that he had to teach me. It it worked. It totally
1: worked. So he was making some decisions pretty much in real time, about what the next beneficial experience would be for you.
2: Yes, he was. Yes, was he was. Because, you know, I never really settled into a kind of fighter. I mean, sometimes we were at full contact tournaments in New York, and sometimes we were, you know, cage fights in Chicago, and, and just different sorts of things. And so he just sort of looked at each inadequacy. He referred to them as Calvin's inadequacies. And we would just pick off each inadequacy as we go. Was there money involved here? Did you pay him? Did he do
1: this yeah. out of the kindness of his heart? I mean, no, it costs money I, I, to go to various locations for these events.
2: I, I paid him a, a stipend and I covered travel. And that was good enough for him. That's all he, he had. It. He was, um, he had a real job. He was a, uh, he wrote instructions for appliances. Okay. So he's a not very... a native English speaker, but he writes the little pamphlet that comes along with the instructions how to use, do your appliances. That's, that was his real job, which he could take anywhere with him.
1: Yes, you could do that. You could do that from anywhere. We're coming up on a break here in a couple of minutes. I, and when we come back from the break, I'd like to start. I, I know you have other mentors that you can talk about and I want to hear about them. But one of the things when we come back, I'd like to hear about from your point of view, what is the difference between coaching and mentoring and teaching, if there are any differences. What are the commonalities? What are the differences? It's one of the things I want to explore with all of my guests so we can get started on exploring that question when we come back from the commercial. I'd also like to know, who's the next mentor you'd like to talk about?
2: Uh, You know... I'm gonna to want to talk about my dad. Okay. Because I, I think I I think he was legitimately a mentor in addition to being a great dad.
1: That's great. So we'll do both of those things after we come back from the break. And just before the break, are there any quotations that are top of mind that any of your something any of these mentors said to you that has stuck with you and maybe you repeat for other people?
2: The, my favorite quote, it, it actually comes from some athlete on ESPN, and none of my mentors ever said this, but it was sort of a centerpiece of the way they acted and expected me to act. And the quote is that the amateur practices until they can get it right, the professional practices until they can't get it wrong.
1: Very interesting. Very interesting.
2: That might relate to the,
1: the famous or infamous 10,000 hours of practice that we hear about from time
2: to right. time. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a big piece of it.
1: Does that apply to statistics as well?
2: Oh, absolutely. The hardest part about statistics much of the time is figuring out what statistical model to use and what version of it. And that... That even really good people sometimes struggle with. You need reps on that. And you can't afford to get it wrong. Because if you pick the wrong statistical model, obviously everything that comes from it is going to be a problem.
1: That decision sounds like a non-scientific type decision to me.
2: Uh, You know, in medicine you have diagnoses. In statistical modeling you have to pick the model. In mechanics, you have to pick the right tool. If you pick up the wrong tool, things might go badly. If you try I to guess. treat somebody for the wrong diagnosis, things might go badly. There's always, a, there's always a sort of where the hell are we moment in any profession, and you have to be flawless at that. Or everything else is inherently flawed or necessarily flawed. Yes,
1: you you can climb a ladder really rapidly, but if it's leaning against the wrong wall or the wrong tree, you've you've gotten to the wrong location very, very rapidly. It's the same kind of decision. Very nice. We should be going to commercial here within just a few seconds. So I will wait for the music to take us out.
3: on facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world and that includes you visit us on facebook at voice america empowerment
0: when people are making a significant impact they're engaged motivated and excited they love what they do when those people work for you you get results Results matter and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission, vision, and values. Where science meets talent, where people drive results.
3: Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
1: Hello, we're back. It's Mentoring with Larry Sternberg on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Cal Garbin. We want to talk about the differences, if any, between teaching, coaching, and mentoring. Cal, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, I think that mentoring is inherently the more personal both in terms of the kind of contact, the amount of contact and also the responsibility. I mean if you agree to be somebody's mentor or mentee, you're saying we're going to gang up on my future. And there's just there's a level of felt responsibility and felt obligation there that I think is really important because it's that felt obligation or that felt responsibility that that gets the extra out of you when you're tired, that gets the extra effort when you're not always sure what that effort should be. I just think that in, in the best of cases, a mentoring is richer because it has to be. Also, because you're spending more time together, it's a it's a different flavor. I think that mentors and mentees know each other better. Than coaches and players or teachers and students. Um, I think that's why we call it something different. And I think that that's maybe sort of a limitation when, you know, in business we talk about, we call it sometimes coaching instead of mentoring. I think that mentoring is a powerful label and it imbues that that responsibility and that investment that I think is, you know, what keeps you going when maybe you do something else. But, you know, I'm not just his teacher. I'm not just his coach. I'm his mentor. I owe him this. She is looking to me for more than ideas. She's looking to me for mentoring. I owe her this. And I really think that as busy as people are, that last hook really increases the quality of the relationship and the quality of its success. So that's where I think mentoring stands out. Teaching and coaching, I probably blend those more than most people do. I don't think there's an interesting difference between them other than whether you're standing in a classroom or on a field. I think that both of them require more attention to who you're working with, where they are, and where they need to be than is commonly construed. Um, I think that, you know, teaching is far too often done to the group. Coaching is done to the group. But I think that both of those can be done to the individuals. I think that you can run a practice or that you can give a lecture so that different people who need different things get those different things out of them. Um, It sort of sounds to me like I'm trying to turn everything into a mentoring relationship, even when I'm standing in a room with 160 of my stats kids. Do you think, what do you think
1: about organizations who implement formal mentoring programs? Give me your thoughts on that and how it might affect the mentoring relationship.
2: Yeah, I know almost nothing about systems like that except in academics, and in academics, they say, you know, when you bring a graduate student in, you don't bring a graduate student into the university, you don't bring them into the college, you don't even bring them into the department, you typically bring them into a lab. And so there's one or more faculty members that make up this lab, and there's a bunch of graduate students. And when you bring them in, you sort of hold up your hand in public and say, I am going to take responsibility for this kid. I am going to do more than just sign her credit slip. I'm going to do more than just sign them up for conferences. I'm going to take over this person's academic life, take responsibility for their academic future, and y'all are going to watch because you know what lab they're in. We all know who's responsible for what kids. And, you know, that, that works because that new student is being mentored by more than just that one faculty member. That faculty member has collaborators, and they are helping with the mentoring. They've got the older graduate students, and starting the next year they have the younger graduate students. And so in academics, there's the advisor, student, mentoring relationship is embedded in a community. And so in that system, you know, it, it nobody ever said, well, we should start doing this. I mean academics has been like that for longer than I've been around it. And so it's it's just it's part of the fabric. It's part of the, the nature of things. I don't know how you would start that from scratch in a business or something like that. That just that seems really complicated. <laughs>
1: Well, I hope to investigate that with some of my other guests. The kind of mentoring you. Yeah, I want, I you want to hear the answer to that question. I I would am anxious to hear it too, and I hope to get more than one answer. <laughs> the situation you described in academics is an assigned mentor relationship rather than one that emerged organically. Do you think that makes any difference?
2: Well, in academics for the most part, if the relationship doesn't work, the student shifts they go to another lab or they go to another mentor or things like that and that can be a little tumultuous but yeah it's sort of a sign but it's not assigned for for forever or we send you off um have you ever I remember that there's there's a vetting process ahead of time You get to see the person on paper. Typically, they come in for one or more interviews. You do spend some time with them. Your other graduate students spend some time with them. So it's assigned after they get there, but you wouldn't have invited them if you didn't think that assignment made sense. Got it. And hopefully, they wouldn't have shown up if they didn't think that assignment made sense. So it's sort of like assignment by agreement, and the agreement part's the important part.
1: I see that. It also seems that you described a situation where there might be one primary mentor, but the person is being mentored by a group of people. Did I get yeah. that
2: right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you're you're in a lab, and if somebody has to make a decision, it's probably going to be your advisor, but the advice-giving and the storytelling and the uh, you know, bringing up alternatives is, is much broader than just that two-person relationship.
1: Would you say that the other people outside of the main advisor, that the difference is they don't feel the same level of responsibility for the mentee's
2: progress? I don't think they think about it I don't think that it's, you know, something they write down on the what I did this year list when you turn it in for tenure and promotion, but I do think that there's a sense of community, and you wouldn't let somebody do something really stupid without commenting. But I think that, as you say, most of the formal parts of the mentoring is that those two people. But um, I know lots of graduate students who I think would would say privately that their greatest benefit was not derived from the mentoring relationship with their advisor. That their advisor was what their advisor did, the advising stuff, and might have shared the mentoring with somebody else, or somebody else might have done more of what you and I would call mentoring. So that part arose organically. Yeah. Very interesting. And there's, there's some people who are really good at having more than one mentor even if those mentors don't particularly like each other <laughs> yeah, <'cause, laughs> that you know, actually could be an advantage it it is and it's and if you can tolerate it it's certainly entertaining and fun because uh, you're constantly hearing the oppositional and appositional views and if if you've got the you've got the but to survive that and and the skills the social skills to to manage it I think that's a great way to go through graduate school. I mean, there's, there's so much stress, a little more can barely manage.
1: We've got a few minutes left, and I do want to give you a few minutes to
2: talk about your father. So tell us about him. Dad was really interesting because Dad would almost but not quite at the beginning of a conversation tell me who was talking Whether this was father and son talking, or this was two guys talking, or this was an old guy telling a young guy how the world is. And I really appreciated that he was willing to not always, you know, kind of hide behind dad or hide behind old guy. And he was really skilled at figuring out which of those I would tolerate advice I didn't want to hear, or instruction that I didn't particularly want, or being told that I was wrong. Not, not the easiest of conversations to have with me. Um, and, and he also, and I really, I really valued that. And I have tried to continue that with my own kids. The thing I will often say is, you and I are going to have a conversation that parents don't usually have with their children. They have with other adults. So hold on. Here we go. Um, Do you think I that's I really a think responsibility
1: felt- that all mentors bear is having those difficult conversations?
2: You should. I'm not sure they're all good at it. And maybe, maybe that's my safety valve As I say, look, we're going to step outside of the usual relationship and we're going to pretend for the rest of the conversation like we have this relationship, which sort of gives everybody a little more latitude in what they can get away with, what they can say, what they can be honest about, what they can complain about, what they can say thank you about.
1: Well, that's one of the advantages of having a psychology professor as a mentor.
2: (laughs) Well, I hope there are advantages.
1: What is one of the most important things
2: that you learned from your father? How challenging it can be to try and mentor somebody who is completely different than you are. And how hard it is to mentor somebody who's almost exactly like you are, but with different goals and how most of the people that you mentor are going to be both at the same time. Kind of like a Venn diagram.
1: It there are some differences exactly. and there are some similarities. When you're
2: mentoring somebody like yourself. And when you're mentoring somebody who's different than you, when you're mentoring them towards goals that you share with them. And when you're mentoring them towards goals that are just their own, And if you don't pay attention to where you are in that box or that Venn diagram, You give bad advice, and that's what a mentor cannot afford to do.
1: We've got less than a minute left. What is your main advice to mentees about how to be a better mentee, your main piece of
2: advice? You're going to hear stuff you don't want to hear that doesn't mean it's wrong. All right. We are going to
1: wrap up here. Dr. Garbin, thank you very much for appearing as my guest. I certainly learned plenty, and I hope the rest of our listeners did. And I hope you have a terrific rest of your day.
2: Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I've really had fun.
0: Thank you for joining us this week for Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. Please join Larry again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of the program on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week.